I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to Wood Talk, for woodworkers by woodworkers. Now here are three guys who have great personalities. Mark, Matt, and Shannon. All right, it's episode 120 for February 6, 2013. On today's show, we're celebrating Get Woodworking Week with an all-email episode. So topics are going to cover everything from finishing to hand saws to rust prevention to sanding and just whatever we have in what we like to call the scrap bin. That's where emails go to die. And then eventually <laughs> we try to answer them for you. It's so lovingly called that. We just want people to know that we don't deliberately. Well, yeah, we do. We deliberately throw them in yeah, there. It wasn't like, you know, dude, let's get rid of these things. Nah, we do our, That's we my do way of answering them. I copy and paste them into the Wood Talk show notes. <laughs> well, it makes you feel I'm like you're doing here. something. Yeah, I mean, you're actually trying. You made an effort, so... Uh, all right, well, b- uh, before we get to all that good stuff, let's uh, hear a word from our sponsors. Today's show is supported by Festool, helping woodworkers get better results in less time and with less mess to clean up afterwards. Visit them online at festoolusa.com. And by Microjig, creators of the Gripper 3D Push Block, an American made precision safety guidance system for the table saw and the wood shop. Visit slash newsletter to sign up for their newsletter today. Hey, you know what, folks? If you have a comment, a question, or maybe a topic suggestion, you know, you can send it to us, and we'll throw it into the scrap bin, which more than likely will, means <laughs> that it will pop out in an episode very much like today. So there are several different ways that you can contact us. Leave us a voicemail on Skype. Our username is WoodTalkOnline. You can call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180. And, of course, you can email us at WoodTalkOnline at gmail.com. Maybe you can even take a possibility of leaving a comment over on our Facebook page, just set up for Wood Talk. And if you're looking for the show notes or downloads from today's show or the previous episodes, you're going to find those over at woodtalkshow.com where you could leave a comment over there too. And we just might take a minute to look at it. And one of us might actually put it into the scrap bin if it's totally worth it. Maybe, maybe, maybe. You just I, I wouldn't count know. on it though. Yeah. All right. Well, let's get into the show proper here. The whole idea today is to cover your questions. And like we said, we they do pile up. We try to hit them a little bit in each show, uh, but that pile just keeps getting bigger and bigger. So we figured it'd be a good time to just rip through as many of these as we possibly can. Before we get to that, though, I did want to cover a couple links because I don't want these to start to pile up. Uh, yes. People have been sending in some really cool things. So if you guys don't mind, I'll just rip through these real quickly. Take care of business. All right. So one video. Footage. What's that? Nothing. Okay. You're, you're talking again, Shannon? We told you not yeah. to talk. You're not supposed to All talk right. until like four minutes into the show. You know that. <laughs> All right. Uh, the first link came in from Alan Lilly. He said, in response to our discussion we had uh, concerning forgery and the museum and things like that with um, the, the last two episodes, really, uh, there's a YouTube video that is discussing forgery and 
Now, not so much forgery. They're really inspecting a piece to determine its validity. So it's claiming to be this old. And these are the tests that they're doing to determine the actual age of the wood, including like X-raying the growth rings and using what they know to about that type of wood and when it would have been harvested. Does that match up with when this piece is claiming to have been built? So it's kind of a a cool sort of uh, related to what we were talking about previously. Kind of a cool video. Basically, it's a CSI of woodworking. You're getting a behind the looks yes. at the museum where they're like, hmm, sure they got this at a garage sale. <laughs> yeah, it's it's pretty intense. They're they're hardcore about it. Um, wanted to also mention David Marks. You guys know him from the Woodwork Show years ago. Well, David has a new blog. It's at davidmarkswoodworking.com. And it's basically a place for him to do what people do with blogs, to talk to people, to to help promote his stuff, to teach things, and show what students are doing in his classes. Um, lots of good stuff there. So he, it just started. Keep an eye on it. He's off to a really, really good start, but a great way to communicate with an incredible craftsman. So I'm looking forward to seeing where that goes. Uh, this one, I don't know if you guys saw this. Uh, the Bill sent this in. It's a video of a planing competition in Japan. Oh, this was so cool. What the heck? (laughs) I mean, I've never seen anything like that. I mean, it's this giant plane that's being pulled along a very, very long and wide board. I mean, it's got to be at least, what, 12 inches wide, would you guys estimate? Easily, yeah. So, yeah. So the force, like you see the first guy doing it, and he clearly has done this before, and it's just one smooth, slow, continuous motion, and it's pulling this shaving that just looks like toilet paper. Like giant yes. toilet paper coming How off. Why does your toilet paper? Well, I've got a large butt, so it's like one of those old dot matrix printer things yeah. with the perforated edges. It all was one long strip. That's mm-hmm. what it looks like. Yeah, it's well, it's funny you say that because when Sam- Samantha was watching it with me, she's like, "What is this? A, a paper making comp- competition? What's going on here?" I'm like, <laughs> nice. "It could be." Well, the great thing is they get the three Americans to try it, and these guys. <laughs> Are, I mean, they get it done, but man, you could tell that they are sweating to, to pull this thing. Uh, so uh, definitely very, very cool, amazing, uh, just craftsmanship in the tool and the ability to set it up to make that type of a planing cut with a plane and an iron of that size is just uh, mind boggling to me. Absolutely. Yeah, it was crazy. Pretty awesome. Uh, all right. We have one more from David Alschmid. He sent in a link to just an amazing watch, or I guess it might be a um, a line of watches that are all wood. So you've got sort of like the linked band on there, but it's all made out of wood materials. Um, it's pretty darn awesome. Actually, there's a couple of them featured here. Yeah, it, it's a pretty sweet little little gallery. Again, Samantha saw that one, and it's only the question came up with, um, how come you don't make me wooden jewelry? I'm like, <laughs> right. you know what, people? You keep sending this stuff, and there's going to be marital problems. So. Yeah, seriously, this is the problem. <laughs> That's what Etsy's for. <laughs> yeah, definitely amazing. So the links to all those things will be in the show notes. So let's get to the meat. The real meat of the show here is the email. So, Shannon, you want to take the first one? Absolutely. Uh, let's see. This is from, I don't know whom. Pug. Oh, from Pug. Uh, he says, hey, guys, great show. I am interested in taking my hand tool schools, hand tool schools, jeez, mm-hmm. that was Freudian. Freudian slip, Freudian slip, hand tool skills to the next level. And I would like to cut some moldings by hand. I was wondering if you could talk about planes for hollows and rounds, what sizes are common and what is a good brand to buy? Mark, why don't you take that? Well, I was actually going to suggest that I go take a nap and you let me know when you're done because <laughs> this will put my butt to sleep. <laughs> I, res- uh, I respect well, it. I respect it. I just don't th- want to do is, it. This is one of those questions that it's quickly becoming like pins or tails first when you talk about what sizes are common. Uh, if you ask me, I think that the number six and the number eight pair of hollows and rounds will take you a very long way. That's exactly what um, I was going to say. Yeah, me too. Some would say <laughs> and published authors like Matt Bickford will say a six and a ten is a good thing. Mm. So I don't know whether I guess he has more. You can put more credibility there because the guy makes the planes and, well, I don't know. Well, whatever. Um, I think regardless, if you can just get like one set of hollows and rounds, the number six is a good way to go. At least if you're planning on building just kind of typical furniture. If like this guy where he's kind of, as he says, taking him to the next level, maybe he's using router bits right now. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of the router bits that you would replace, you know, they're not enormous things, you know, your typical kind of edge profile treatment, the Cove or the OG or something like that. The number six Holland round, which uh, approximates a three eighths inch wide cutter is really good for 
three quarter to seven eighths inch wide stock. And there's a lot that you can do with just that one pair of hollows and rounds. Um, If you want to add a little bit of interest by doing different radii in your profiles, then I say the number eight's good. But again, number 10 is just fine. Don't, you know, uh, overanalyze that, I think. Because once you get to using hollows and rounds, you can start kind of making your own moldings and you don't have to really be kind of tied to any particular profile. You can lay it out based upon the board you have it at hand. And I think once you do it a couple of times, you'll kind of, it makes a lot more sense and you suddenly realize, oh, geez, I don't really need to worry about the sizes I have. As far as a good brand to buy, that's actually... Limited, right? Yeah. I mean, now that Old Street Tools, the former Clark and Williams has kind of, quote, gone on hiatus, um, really the only game in town is Matt Bickford at MS Bickford Plains to buy brand new planes, that is. Um, there are some halls and rounds that you can buy. I think it's Lee Valley. They have these um, imported planes, and I guess they're based on the Japanese hollow and round. Um, I get questions about those all the time, and it's one of those things where, sure, I've never tried them, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> but they're like 40 bucks for four planes. So it's almost worth like, yeah. sure, give them a shot. Yeah, I try mean, it. 40 bucks, I mean, I'm, I'm a little little hesitant to say that'd be good because the price is so low. But at the same time, look at the cost of Japanese hand saws. They're so dirt cheap and yet they still work just fine. So um, that's really Lee Valley and MS Bickford are really the only places that I know. Well, that's not true. Um, Philly planes over in England. Uh, Phil makes outstanding planes. I've never tried his halls and rounds, but I have several of his other planes. So that is another option there, but you're really, really limited unless you go on to the antique market, which even then um, thanks to Matt Bickford, <laughs> the, the antique market has exploded and you can't get hollows and rounds very easily anymore. They're certainly not cheap. Yeah. So we're getting to the point where, you know, is it even worth restoring them when you can pay $50 more and get a brand new plane right. with an already sharpened iron? So all right, there you go. Cool. Matt, thanks for the question, Pug. Pug. Hey, you know what? My computer's starting to crash. <laughs> Are you serious? Yeah, it's completely frozen up. So I'm expecting it's going to do the thing like that one time when it went, you know, it just kind of disappeared on me. <laughs> yeah. So do you guys want to move on to the next thing? And then I'll come, I'll turn it off, come back on, and then I'll yeah. catch up with you guys. Yeah, that's fine. I'll just do, I'll do my question. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. Bye, Matt. Bye. See you. Bye, Matt. See you in a couple minutes. Uh, that's awesome. Yeah, Matt's got some computer problems lately, so... Um, all right, moving on to the next one. We've got a question from Everett. He says, uh, I've been, well, you know what? Here's the problem. This question, these two questions tie into one another, Matt's and mine. So let me skip down <laughs> a little bit more here uh, and just go with my next one. Okay, this one is from Daryl. He says, I have a Delta TP305 thickness planer that's not cutting parallel to the bed. One edge of the board comes out thicker than the other. It is off by about a 32nd of an inch across a five inch board. Is it possible to correct this? I recently milled some bores for drawers, and the joinery is not coming out right due to this difference. Do you have any other tips for tuning a planer? I've had this one for five years, and I do move it around a lot. Well, here's the thing. Yeah, I mean, planers, (laughs) many planers have adjustments. So you look at the manual. It tells you that you crack this open, turn that, do that, and you might be able to tilt the cutter head one way or the other. Sometimes you may even be modifying the, um, the, the tilt of the bed. In this particular case, I looked up the manual and I don't see any reference to adjustments whatsoever. Um, it even has indexed blades so that it's a type of blades where you it pop. Does, really? Yep. Okay. You pop them out. They've got the little index holes and they're reversible. So you can use both sides. And then when you replace them, they're exactly the same dimension. You pop them in. You don't. So you never really have to adjust your blades so that they're concentric to the cutter right. head. So that's one adjustment that's not an issue. Uh, but I did not see any reference to how you would adjust the entire head if you've got some variance there. Now, um, reading some reviews as well, this is not a a widely loved planer. Hmm. A lot of people are yeah. like saying, oh, if it's a once in a while thing, uh, it's not too bad. But for a serious craftsman or someone who's really putting a lot of wood or hardwoods through this, it's going to really choke up. So, so I don't, you know, it doesn't surprise me too much that there aren't a whole lot of adjustments available for something like this. So I don't know if anyone has this planer and has some recommendations, but if the, if there are no adjustments, I don't know if he's just stuck or if there's some trick that he can, uh, he can do to, to actually wind up getting it to work. Well, the other thing is, is I actually, um, responded via email to Daryl. Uh, this was a while ago, Mm -hmm. basically saying, 
you know, I don't know if this has index blades like my DeWalt does, but you might need to kind of adjust that a little bit. And he responded by saying, that's a good idea. I've never even cracked it open to look at it. So <laughs> okay. there could be any number of things. I mean, it could even be that the blade has gotten duller on one end or maybe it's chipped off. Um, and, you know, you think about it, even at that high speed when the when those cutters are, are whizzing along there, yeah. even if the blade is dull, it generally still cuts. It doesn't cut very well. Right. But he may have some issues where something has adjusted. If he moves it around a lot and he's had it for five years – bound to happen. I mean, um, I talked about my DeWalt recently about how it was clogging up and I actually got an email saying, would you not recommend that plane? I was like, no, absolutely. I'd recommend it. I've had it for like eight years. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, it started, it's caused me one clogging problem that I fixed with a little bit of like messing around in there. And I think, you know, I mean, let's, let's face it. They don't make things like they used to. He's had it for five years could be any number of things. Well, and the price point on these things is fairly low. So you're not going to yeah. necessarily have the same type of adjustability and options that you have in a larger, big floor standing unit. So it might just be the, the nature of the beast. But if anyone does have tips on that particular model, if you've dealt with this, let us know. And we'll pass on uh, the information there. Matt, you're that back. That was the uh, Delta TP305. That's it. That's it. Oh, the TP305. You know what that TP stands for? Toilet paper. That's right. All right. <laughs> so Matt, speaking of toilet paper, are you done? <laughs> yeah, I'm all set there. I know what you're Mexican doing. Food. I think it was the uh, uh, the Mediterranean place we tried last night. Nice. All right. I'll do it. Okay. If you got your uh, notes up, you can do your question. Okay. Well, uh, we have this one coming in from, uh, let's see, this is Larry. And Larry was asking, I recently built a 30-foot by 40-foot pole barn for my wood shop. Larry, I already don't like where this question's going. You suck, Larry. Yes, no like Zach. You. What a jerk. If I wasn't what? held to a family-friendly <laughs> show, I would definitely have some other words. Yeah, for- Larry, I have enough wood to fill that pole barn, so meh. <laughs> yeah. All right, so so Larry, Larry says, the roof is insulated, but the walls are not. I have a heater I use while I'm out there, but when I'm not out there, it's not heated. A month ago, I cleaned and waxed using Johnson's floor paste, all my tools, which I do monthly, and two days later, the entire surface of the table saw, bandsaw, and joiner were completely covered in rust. I thought at the time I didn't get all the 409 off, and when I cleaned, and that must have caused the rust. I redid everything, and it lasted longer than a couple of days, but the rust is backs. Backs. Back? Back. Sing- singular. Back. No S. <laughs> I even put a thicker coat of floor paste on this time. Am I doing something wrong in my cleaning and waxing process? Is it just natural since I live in a cold climate in winter? He lives in Cincinnati, and I just need to clean more than once a month. I need advice on prevention as well as there's no way I can heat an entire building constantly. So winter uh, woodworking, definitely a huge problem. One suggestion that I made to Larry is the big thing to me is this is falls into that realm of um, – it's just it's purely moisture in the air, obviously. I mean, that's mm-hmm. the big reason why they cause rust. But when the uh, the temperature starts coming down, let me just do this. I'm going to read what I wrote to, to Larry. That, that Mediterranean food really messed We're going to go to a video with Matt in front of a green screen. It's going to be like his little weather forecast. Uh, that's pretty much what it is because actually that's that's exactly it. I, I want to give Larry an analogy, and this thing is just going to work for everybody. When you think about in the summertime when you come out in the morning and there's dew on the ground – it has everything to do with the fact that the air is just a little bit warmer than the ground itself. And that's what's going to cause water vapor to kind of be sucked out of the air and it's going to land on the colder surface. And that's probably, in my opinion, what's happening with Larry's tools here. As the sun starts coming up, it's probably not going to be like nice and warm in there. We're going to be running around with just a T-shirt and shorts. But the surrounding air is going to be so much warmer than Larry's table surfaces on his his saws and whatever tools he's, he's having the rust problem with. Mm. So what's happening is it's creating this nice little, its own little atmospheric condition where it's going to suck the moisture out of the warmer air and start depositing it on the, the surface of his tools. Uh, so that's, that's our nice little meteorological lesson today. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed it or get starting with woodworking. So it's really a torture test. I mean, even, even as bad as being in a, a humid environment is because he's sort of creating this, uh, this surface humidity. On exactly. Because right. so. he just left it in hot and humid or he just left it cold, it would be fine. Yeah. But yeah, exactly. Heating, the, um, the, the change in temperature. Well, it's not even so much when he's coming in to heat. I mean, this is going to happen every single day. The air doesn't have to really heat up that much. It just needs to be a little bit warmer than the actual surface. Because think about it. Even in the summertime, your tabletops are probably just a little bit, well, except for you, Mark, when you don't have your heated space or your cooled air conditioned space there. Yeah. 
but the surface is always going to be just a little bit cooler to the touch. So obviously the metal is staying cooler than the surrounding air, and that's what's kind of pulling some of the moisture. My suggestion to Larry, once you get past that whole meteorological kind of a thing there, is you need to have something directly on the surface, something more than, than the paste wax. I mean, I'm thinking you need to have some sort of cover. There's those great magnetic tool covers that you can get that sit right on top of the uh, the tabletop. You could also just get some of those, you know, nice tool covers, just like the fabric ones. I'm sure it's like a heavy canvas with some sort of coating or something, but that should help to kind of protect it just a little bit more other than hmm. the the paste wax. I mean, that's, that's the one thing I'm, I'm thinking you just need to have something just a little bit more in there than that coat of paste wax. Because think about it, when you have a tool sent to you, or when you purchase it and you're taking it all out of the box, it's covered in that just slimy, nasty stuff that you have to what use WD-40 to clean off. Or if you're lucky, that's all you need to. Mm. So you need to have just something a little bit more on there. Otherwise, maybe find out where those manufacturers are buying that stuff and start slapping it on with a nice big brush. There you go. <laughs> well, I can tell you from firsthand experience, the little metallic like covers, they work great because I had the exact same problem. You know, I'd, I'd have a space heater running and then I'd turn the space heater off and I left the shop. And, you know, the, unless I guess you're in there for like a really, really long time, your tabletops just don't get that warm. Mm -hmm. So then, but the air around you has gotten all warm and the moisture, the relative humidity has gone up. Um, and now you suddenly just shut the heat off and everything gets really, really cold. And it's like, you know, condensation on a water glass. That's exactly and it doesn't it. matter how much paste wax – well, I guess that's not true. If you put like a physical amount of paste wax on there, like a barrier of paste wax, maybe it would protect it. But with water standing on the surface, it will automatically start to rust. Like you can watch it rust. Yep. Um, if I'm in the middle of uh, summer and it's really hot and humid outside, I keep my garage door closed because it – uh, the house kind of ambiently cools the garage because the, the ducting runs through my garage – but if I open the garage door and all that um, hot heat and humidity comes into the air-conditioned space, I immediately get condensation on every metallic surface and rust within like two minutes. Wow. Yep. Um, and I had to get those um, magnetic sheets and work like a charm. Cool. Yeah. It forms a physical barrier against that stuff. And, and if you think about the, the cost of those covers – Versus you constantly coming out there and wasted time trying to clean the rust off and potentially pitting your surfaces. It's such a small investment. Um, yeah. I, I, I know even like uh, the folks over at Affinity Tools, uh, the makers of Bora, they actually have a cover. Uh, and it, it's not a magnetic one. It's just a, a simple basic tool cover. They come in various sizes. Uh, something like that probably would at least help to inhibit it. It's not going to stop it necessarily, but it may inhibit it enough so that it's – when you do do your monthly cleaning, it's just touching up little areas. Because I, I think in the situation that Larry's describing, um, and I, I think also in his email, we kind of shortened it a little bit. It was a mention like sometimes he goes like a week to two weeks between yeah. actually using the shop. Right. So you're definitely going to have some time in there where it's like you want something covering your tools, not not rust. You want something else <laughs> yeah. covering those tools. Well, I'm also going to put some links there for him. I just did a, a couple of quick searches. I have an article on my site. There's one on popular woodworking as well as a fine woodworking paid article we'll link to that talk about different rust preventers. So there are things other than wax that uh, are pretty heavy duty uh, materials that you can put on the surface and then possibly put a light coat of wax on top of that to regain the, the slickness of the surface. And that can also help just at least bolster your defenses um, more so than what you're just using now with regular wax. Now, incidentally, this runs into another question from Everett, uh, very related. He says, I use dry lube uh, on my cast iron tables. It seems to work pretty well. And I like the fact that it's way cheaper than Bow Shield. He's talking about the Bow Shield T9. Every now and then, I give the tables a thorough cleaning with WD-40, 3M scrub pad, and then simple green to get rid of the grease. What do you think of this method? Um, based on what we've said, I think that for cleaning purposes is perfectly fine. And as long as he's not getting rust and it's not a continuous problem like Larry's having, uh, then I think his system is perfectly fine. But again, he may also look into those articles that I'm going to put the links up for because there may be other products out there that might be better to use cheaper or more effective. You just have to kind of look at the results of those tests. I'm you know, curious, it's funny I how often, how often do you guys do this type of preventative maintenance in your shops? Well, that's funny. Cause that's, that's exactly <laughs> what I was going to say. I feel like he after does this monthly. Things, 
<laughs> yeah, I feel like a slacker. I'm like, uh, uh, I do it until the rust actually gets in the way of pushing the wood through. But I mean, I don't really have that. Much. So it's a nice crimson brick color. That's what I go yeah. for. <laughs> it's, it's like um, one of those. It, 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 it bleeds into the finish. I really like that. It gives it that nice rustic look. Yeah, frankly, obviously, I'm I'm sort of the outlier here. I don't worry about this. I could go uh, probably a couple of years, and the only reason I would ever have a problem is if, well, that's not true. There are times when it's monsoon season and the humidity picks up. And if I'm not running the air conditioner in there periodically, I could have a problem because the stuff is relatively unprotected. Uh, the most I do is I use a little bit of Renaissance wax on all the cast iron just to give me a nice slick surface. It's not even rust preventative. It's only to make sure that it, the wood slides nice and smooth, but that's enough uh, to handle anything that Arizona's going to throw at me usually. It's just interesting because, now granted, I don't have these power tool surfaces anymore, but I have a lot of iron. I've got a lot of planes and saws and things like that that still rust. And I am still on the first can of Bow Shield and the first can of Renaissance wax that I bought five years ago. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Am I doing something wrong here? I mean, <laughs> I recognize those are expensive, but I mean, come on. I spent, what is Renaissance wax now? It's expensive. I know it's that, always been expensive. Yeah. I mean, I think it's literally almost six years old now. Um, I I don't know. I just well, Larry also wonder. has a he's got a pole barn with uh, yeah, uninsulated walls. You know, so he's he, so you would have to have more outdoor ish conditions to really give a good comparison. Just having solid walls around you and no major air leaks could make a huge difference in the impact that that you're experiencing versus something like what Larry. Let me is. let me throw one more thing into this, and then we should move on. Larry, look into a product called Ballistol. Um, as in ballistics. It was invented by the German army in World War I to lubricate gun barrels. And it was also, they realized they could use it on leather for waterproofing on leather. So suddenly it became this like all-in-one lubrication rust prevention thing that mm. the soldiers could keep in their pack to take care of their boots, their belts, their guns, everything. We have Ballistol at the Stepping Stone Museum, and this is essentially a pole barn. We're completely exposed to the elements. There's no heating, AC, anything ever. And we have nothing but old iron everywhere in the shop. We don't have a rust problem. Um, we keep the Ballistol. It comes in those like big, like Coleman white gas type metal canisters. Mm. And um, you can also get it in a spray bottle. So we just pour from the big canister into a spray bottle. We actually use it to sharpen on the oil stones, which then automatically goes to our tools. And there's no rust in, in that shop at all. It's a fantastic product. You can buy it at a sporting goods store. And I don't know, that might help in your more extreme environment than going with paste wax, which, you know, is paste wax really meant to be a water proofer? I don't think so. Yeah. Oh, okay. Anyway, cool. we'll probably beat Good that stuff. horse dead. All right, Shen, you got the next one and you've got a very difficult name to pronounce. Cool boy. Enjoy. Okay. This is from Akos. I am Akos Karit Kiryarto. Yeah. That's not too bad. No, that sounds great. That's totally way better than I would have done. <laughs> that was my best Klingon or Navi mm -hmm. impression. There you go. Um, Akos is a bowyer from Hungary. That's someone that makes bows. In um, Hungary. I, I really enjoy the Wood Talk shows. I was browsing the internet and I found this link um, for it's a an archery link. I want to make something like that, but I have a problem. I don't know how to stain the veneer one and a half millimeter thick ash wood completely, not just on the surface. Can you give me some advice on how to do this? Um, well, well, I would say don't stain it, but dye it. Mm -hmm. um, yep. would be the first thing. Um, ash is a ring porous hardwood. So, um, it put it this way, uh, red oak is ring porous and you can like blow through it like a straw. Um, ash is very much the same way. So it's going to have these big wide open pores, that will absorb dye like, like nobody's business. And if you're talking about one and a half millimeters thick, um, I think that would do a pretty dang good job of, of penetrating. You know, if you actually dunk it in the dye um, and even let it sit there for a while, um, a while meaning like 30 seconds to a minute, I imagine you could probably get pretty um, homogenous penetration. 
Have you guys ever? You guys think have you ever thought about using one of those? And I know that he's dealing with much larger pieces on a bigger scale, so I don't know that it would be possible. But I often thought if the wood is thin enough, I wonder how successful we would be if we use like one of those vacuum things that sucks the air out of like <laughs> the meat before you put it in the freezer. Yeah, right. <laughs> Actually, I swear I've that. seen somebody do that. Yeah, like a food saver kind of thing for. And if it works with you know marinades, and and I know you could marinate like a steak in ten minutes or something like that because it just pulls all the air out sucks all the juices into the meat um i'm wondering why you couldn't use that with a nice liquid uh, water-based dye or something like that if it was that, a big that's enough that's how thing. um uh dave jesky uh of uh, blue spruce toolworks that's how he does his like resin impregnated mallets and things oh no kidding and i know scott meek is doing that trying that with some of his hand planes now mm-hmm. it's the exact same process where they essentially take the the wood blank and i guess they dunk it in the epoxy or whatever, and then suck out all the air. And where the air was in the wood block, it suddenly gets filled with the epoxy. So mm-hmm. I feel like somebody like Don Williams or one of those like finishing gurus, even Flexner, maybe did this. Someone had with one of those like Ronco, you know, uh, f- what are those things? Packaging, the, the steak thing you're talking about, yeah. you know? Well, that, well we should dig around and see if we could find anything on that. But that, if the wood doesn't take it on its own, you know, based on its own properties, then that seems like something you might want to look into. But you probably have to cobble something together to handle the, the pieces that you're working with. Yeah, I, I think since like, he's working in ash, he should be okay because it is uh, it has very large pores. Yeah, yeah. Well, like cool. a like a 13 year old boy has very large greasy pores. Mm, <laughs> memories. Oh, good. I'll get to look forward to that in a couple of years. Yeah, Great. No Thanks. <laughs> Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Dad, I hate you. <laughs> you see the picture we took of his pimple that we called Stan. Oh, God. I, want... I have to eat dinner soon. Let's not talk about that. <laughs> I know. I still haven't either yet. I might have just ruined it. <laughs> Wonderful. All right. You're up, Matt. Okay. Uh, this one comes from Chris. I have some blue handle Irwin chisels that have rounded and nicked edges. I also have some vintage plain irons and chisels that need repair. Since I'm a novice, I'm concerned about using my bench grinder and taking the temper out of the steel. I was wondering if you guys have any suggestions or an opinion about how to go about fixing them. I have considered getting the Grizzly version of the Tormek or possibly the Tormek, knowing that it will serve me for a lifetime. I've also looked at the Lee Valley Deluxe Power Sharpening Set. Opinions? So my first thing is um, you don't have to be a novice to be concerned about doing it. I'm concerned about it every single time I step up to a, you know, some sort of bench grinder. And yeah. to be quite honest with you, I have actually kind of uh, blued my ends there a little bit. Uh, but then I just quickly quench it and then I remove more material and I get some fresh material. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. Um, but usually what I end up doing is oftentimes I, I, have, I do own a, a Tormek. And that's usually where I end up going with it. I have to say, if you have the means to purchase the Tormek or uh, one similar <laughs> I to recommend it. recommend picking one up. <laughs> uh, it's definitely one that is really easy to use. Uh, I think you get really great results with it. Uh, but up until I had it, the one thing I would do the most is I would actually break out some really coarse sandpaper and I would use that to really grind down my surface that, you know, if I needed to get the, the really deep nick out or if I wanted to reshape it, I would just end up doing that. And I got great results with it. Again, it's very much like using a bench grinder. You're going to want to stop periodically and quench the uh, the blade. I never had a problem with uh, the blade whatsoever. And this is what I usually did in the very first days when I was like, I'm going to give this sharpening thing a try. This mm. might be fun. <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I actually do something uh, similar. I've got a jet wet sharpener that I use. The thing is, though, if if I don't know, it depends on how how often he's going to need to do this because sometimes right. he could just go scary sharp on this and make some quick adjustments and, and fix a couple of blades and then move on to whatever his his regular system is. So he may not need to necessarily just go into the full on Tormek world. Um, the other thing I'll mention is I do have a bench grinder that's um, just a basic variable speed delta bench grinder, and I bought one of the white wheels that's a higher grit. And yep. it is possible, you know, t- bring it on the slowest speed, and it is possible just take your time. Have a little cup of water there to to cool the blade down, and the, the thing is it's patience. And I suffer from this all the time. Every time I use that thing, I, I just push a little further than I should, and, and I run run into a problem. But if you take your time with it, there's no reason why you couldn't readjust the bevel or you know fix a major mistake like that using a slow speed grinder right chris chris i'm gonna say stop the madness and don't buy anything right now um 
as someone that owns a Tormac and barely uses it anymore, it's used for my carving gouges and my turning tools. And now I'm using more of those carbide easy wood tools. So <laughs> the Tormac is gathering a lot more dust. You can buy Shannon's. The, the thing that you need to do, um, put a, a, uh, what's it called? A camber, a, uh, a curve on your grinding stone so that it has a convex edge. I know that sounds really counterintuitive because you're trying to get a straight edge on your chisel, but essentially that little hump means that the grinding wheel will only be cutting in the middle at the top of that crown. So it's cutting in a much smaller surface, which means it's going to be a lot harder to burn your tool edge. Mm. The second thing is, is constantly just keep a cup of water right next to the grinder. And if the edge is ever too hot to touch, dunk it. Yes. And 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 you know, the, I think the big issue is if it ever gets that hot, dunk it, and then like don't go right back to the stone. I mean, the steel will hold that heat for a while. You got to let it cool down. But we're talking about you know, bump it up to the take a couple of passes back and forth over that crowned edge and dunk the the um, chisel, and then take it right back to the stone while it's still wet. It actually can be very difficult to burn your blades, especially on some of this modern steel. I mean, Irwin. Mm-hmm. It's a good chisel, but it's also a modern um, metallurgy and everything. So it's, it's, I think a lot of people worry a bit too much about burning things. Um, and the biggest thing that I did was putting that cri- that slight crown on my uh, grinding wheel. Makes a huge difference. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Sweet. All right, Shannon, you actually have the next one because I had to do my uh, thickness. Oh yeah, what do you know? <laughs> uh, Oh, this is like a long one, isn't it? Mm-hmm. I've got to scroll down the page here. Except that Google. Drive is giving me errors. Um, let's see. I don't know who this is from, but it says... It's from Will. Um, yes, there it is. Will. As a kid, I watched Norm and decided to one day set up a garage shop, buy a biscuit joiner, and make my own furniture if I ever bought a house. Now I have a house, a lightly used biscuit joiner, and two young boys who are not allowed in the garage. Not a big problem for me, but the wife has a different opinion. Mm-hmm. So I need hand tool selection help. What hand saws do you recommend... My only hand saws are, are an old Buck Brothers back saw and a Ryoba from Lowe's. I'd like to try cutting dovetails and tenons, but I also need to teach and work with eight and four-year-old boys. I was leaning towards a Dozuki, but thought a heavier and more rigid saw blade might be a better option. What do you guys recommend? Uh, he goes on to say, the saws I have in mind from either Lee Valley or Lee Nielsen are a rip-tooth dovetail and a cross-cut carcass. Lots of S's in that cross-cut. Mm-hmm. Or a tenon saw from Lee Nielsen. Um, this guy's like you, Mark. The OCD does not allow mixing and matching <laughs> I like, saw brands. I so like my handles care. to look the same, please. <laughs> um, and there was one little last part. He's just commenting on our last show where our last show was helpful and informative. Um, Shannon mentioned using a smoothing plane for everything. Would he recommend using the Lee Nielsen low angle smoother to start, especially for use with a shooting board? Okay, that's a totally different question. So we'll get to that later. Um, Okay, he says he wants to cut dovetails and tenons. So we're talking joinery here. So I'd say even though you're you know, talking about working with your kids and teaching your kids, I wouldn't worry about hand saws or panel saws at this point. Just focus on your back saws. Um, because even if you wanted to like have your, your son cross-cut a board, you, know, you could still do that with a back saw. I mean, obviously it limits the, death they can, the, the depth at which they can cut, but... You know, there's no reason, I think, to bring in a handsaw because, first of all, it's going to be a much longer saw. Um, the chances of it kind of getting kinked and more teeth to sharpen and all that seems to me a, a back saw is going to be a better method to go for smaller hands, et cetera, et cetera. Plus, it meets your joinery needs. Um, let's see. I mean, you can't go wrong with Lee Valley or Lee Nielsen. And his idea of a dovetail saw on a crosscut carcass saw, I think, is a great place to go. If you're going to buy two saws, that's the one I would go to. Um, if you just buy one, I'd buy a carcass saw because you can cut dovetails with that. Mm. Um, the problem with going into tenon saws is they generally are longer, 14, 16, even 18 inches long. It adds a lot more weight, and it's going to be hard for working with young kids. And frankly, to a beginning sawyer, I think that can be difficult to work with. So starting with a a smaller saw is a good option. Um, Honestly, Lee Valley, Lee Nielsen, doesn't matter. I've tried them both. They both work awesome. Uh, If it helps, Lee Valley is like 
ridiculously cheap and still an incredible saw. Yeah. So, you know, buy their match set and what do you spend? Like $80, I think, for both saws. I don't know how they make them that cheap. Whereas <laughs> you're going to spend, you know, several hundred dollars mm-hmm. for Lee Nielsen to get two saws. Yeah, so, and the Lee, the, uh, Lee Nielsen combo that he just mentioned, that's exactly what I did when I first started to get a little bit more. And I was like, ah, eh, you know, I should probably have a good complement of hand saws. What am I missing here? And that's the pair that I went for. I had the, the dovetail saw and then the uh, crosscut carcass saw. Yeah, and you still probably use them, you know. Those two, yeah, so that's the primary ones. Great saws. Use. Yep. Um, and you know, back when you bought them, Mark Lee Lee Valley didn't even wasn't even on the the scene for these saws. Right. So, right. Um, I've I've only used the Lee Valley saws at shows. Um, a couple of times at uh, Chuck Bender School, when one of my fellow classmates has brought one, I played around with it. It's a great saw, it really is. So, um. You know, I can't really push it one direction or other. Let your let your uh, your conscience be your guide there. Whether you want to spend more, I personally think the Lee Nielsens are prettier. But that's hey, just if me. you're gonna have kids touch them, get the cheaper ones, dude. Yeah, that's. Yeah. I didn't want to say that. <laughs> I'll say it. Not I have a kid. <laughs> you know, felt like it was you know not qualified to say such a thing. But yeah, I'd be hesitant to let you know a little kid touch my bad axe dovetail saw. Yeah, and it nope. isn't like the Lee Valley stuff is is crap. You know, it's still a really really good saw, probably better than what most people even have. So uh, you can't go wrong with that one. Okay. Given right. the look on the uh, folks at um uh, at the Lee Nielsen tool event, I ended up taking Aiden to. They had the same look too. Like you're gonna really <laughs> let him touch those. <laughs> Uh, his last question on the smoother, what do you what do you say? Could we unanimously agree that a low angle smoother is a good place to start? What do you guys I, prefer? I'll say that. Else? I mean, I, I love my low angle smoother right now. It's one of the, the best things I have. I, I I hate to admit it, but it's like I look at my other smoothers and go, sorry, I like this one. <laughs> you guys suck. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, again, it all comes down to if you really want to mill boards by hand, the smoother is not the way to go. But I think most people are starting with an S4S board. You know, and they're either cleaning it up or they're doing just some little things with it. Smoother is a great place to go. Um, the thing you have to look forward, look out for the low angle, the Lee Nielsen low angle smoother that does have square walls, doesn't it? I think I'm mm-hmm. getting that confused with the Lee Valley. One of those does not have the side walls are not square to the sole. It's not meant to be used on its side. In other words, oh, I see. Um, I think you're okay with the Lee Nielsen because those are based off of vintage Stanley patterns, so you should be fine there. Um, the only thing I would say just to make things more difficult is that at a shooting board, more mass is a nice thing. So, um, a smoother might be a bit light, but as your first plane, you cannot go wrong with that. Once you get bitten by the bug and you're ready to be using a shooting board all the time and you don't want to reset it up for shooting part the smoothing, then get something else. But smoother is the way to start, I think. Cool. More mass is what I keep telling my doctor every time he complains about my health. More <laughs> mass is awesome. I need more mass, doc. What should I do? All right. Next. All right. Let's see here. This one question comes in from Walter, and Walter says, I believe a good sanding schedule for hardwoods is 80 grit, then 120 and 180. What do you recommend for plywood, and how do you determine the starting grit? Is it different for Baltic ply versus a more expensive grade like a cherry veneer plywood? Um, number one, Walter, I, I hate sanding. So my problem is I tend to run into the problem where I just jump way up to where I probably shouldn't be starting. But typically with with plywoods especially, I think I oftentimes usually I I feel very comfortable at starting somewhere about like 180 and going forward. I mean, Mm -hmm. the vast majority of them, other than a construction grade plywood uh, where it's it's rough because it's meant to be rough. I've never really had a problem with starting at a higher grit and getting decent results from it. Um, if you get a really nice expensive type of uh, plywood, like the cherry veneer I used for a couple of projects uh, a couple of years ago, I mean, that stuff you can even use a scraper on and you don't have to worry about blowing through it. Yeah. But usually I end up starting somewhere about 180 and going forward from there. Yeah, I mean, most good quality plywood is pre-sanded to some degree, but what you got to watch out for, and you're right, you could probably hit it with 180 or even 220 if it's in good shape and call it done. The thing you got to watch out for though is a lot of times when you're pulling those sheets across one another, if there's a little something gets stuck between Mm -hmm. there or you slide it out the back of your truck, uh, you will get a divot and a groove that goes through and that will not come out with just a quick 180 sanding. And and for something like that, that's a whole different thing, but I, I usually use a little bit of water uh, to raise it so that it brings the level up. And then I go back to the 180 standing, but almost always I, I, I will do the same thing you do, Matt. I very rarely go anything less than 180 on a good quality sheet of plywood, just 
if anything, just because of the fear <laughs> that I'm going to yes. burn through. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. Oh, there is a difference to his question between Baltic ply and a more expensive cherry veneer. Baltic ply is usually a BC or even a CC grade panel. So it's not as smooth. Um, and that and the fact that the Baltic birch is, uh, um, they, they don't go through the same steps they go to with a, an AA or AC or AB architectural panel like what you're buying with a cherry veneer plywood. So you're going to have to start lower and work your way up, I think. But, well, and typically with Baltic ply, I don't, most people aren't building finished surfaces, building right. furniture using the Baltic birch as the finished surface. So right. um, that's usually an underlayment or an interior part where it's not even as big of a deal. Uh, okay. Thanks for that, Walter. Um, we have another question here from Jack. He says, I have a make-do shop and purchased a small bandsaw Craftsman 10-inch uh, bandsaw. And tensioning the blade seems to be an issue that I forgot I was going to have to deal with. After a bit of searching, I found the J. Thine. Is that pronounced right? Thine? Sure. That's how I would do it. <laughs> this is one of those cases where I ask you guys. It's the blind leading the blind here. Yes, it is. Uh, it's a, a worksheet on tensioning. And he gave me the link here. He says, it doesn't seem like a bad method. I was wondering if anyone else has tried this method of tensioning or if there's another neophyte-friendly method. Now, I don't know. Did you guys look this up? Did you actually look at this page? Yes, uh, I did. It no. is quite the process. Um, I couldn't answer the first question. How much does your bandsaw blade weigh? I have no idea. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you actually need every possible stat you can imagine about your bandsaw blade, including the weight, the length, the thickness. You've got to uh, get some calipers and, and measure the thickness the width, and then you have to measure the wheel separation, and then give it your desired tension, and that's usually based on the manufacturer's instructions. And what this thing does is it calculates a frequency, and that frequency is what the blade should sound like when it's plucked, like a, like a musical instrument with a string. So on this page is listed a bunch of audio files that you can hear a particular tone. And that, yeah, and it so, does nothing for me. I'm tone deaf. <laughs> Matt goes, yep, sounds good. <laughs> Um, yeah, so it, you actually listen to the tone and keep tensioning until your tone matches the tone of the file that you're listening to. It really sounds like too much to me. Like it's, it, I'm sure it, it could very well be the most accurate thing in the world, but in terms of being neophyte friendly, that's no. not it as far as I'm concerned. That's a lot of math and a lot of work. Um, it's just giving me flashbacks to like college. Yeah, know? that's rough. That's rough. This, pianos and things. Yeah, this, this, that's exa- I was just going to say, I'm like, this is the perfect thing for somebody who has a piano tuning background or something. I just, <laughs> I can't imagine. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but oftentimes I don't even really use the gauge on the back of my saw. A lot of times I'll just kind of, with the saw unplugged, yeah. push my finger against it and go, yep, nails can turn kind of white there. This seems to be a good tension for it. It's not moving yeah. two inches to the left or two inches to the right. Okay, it's hold on. moving I've, just a pinch. I've always used, there's a rule of thumb that's batted around for a while. Who knows where it came from? But I set the blade, the the roller, the, whatever those things are, the blocks up about six inches from the tabletop. And as I push the blade, I should not be able to deflect it more than a quarter inch to the side without my, my fingertip getting white from too much yeah. pressure. Yep. Um, I don't know where I learned that. Maybe it was Lonnie Bird or something like that years ago. And that's what I've just gone off of. I, so, You know, here's what I do. I wait. I just listen to it, right? And I wait for it to sound like this. Hold on. Wait for it. Hold on. There. That's what I'm listening for. Did you guys hear that? No, that the brown note? <laughs> Did you just play the brown note? <laughs> no, I just downloaded one of the files. That sounds low to me. Um, but yeah, I do the same thing. Basically, if you stick your finger out, you really extend your finger out far. Um, you don't really have a whole lot of strength when you're pushing into something. So by doing that, you sort of limit the amount of force you could put with your finger, like you said, without turning it white. And if it's turning white, then you're probably also in pain. So, (laughs) so I usually just look at it that way. If I can move it about a quarter inch without being in pain or really straining, that's probably enough. And I think the thing with tension that's a little weird is in spite of manufacturer's instructions, some like Timberwolf are low tension blades. Others recommend higher tensions. Then you talk to really experienced woodworkers who have very different perspectives. Like David Marks, for instance, will tell you, tighten the crap out of it. Like he cranks down until it doesn't go anymore. But then you talk to someone like Michael Fortune, and he has a totally different perspective on it. So that's the problem with tensioning is it is something that once you get a little more experience, you might start to have your own personal preferences that go beyond hitting a particular specific manufacturer's recommendation. Right. 
So yeah. it's, I've always but, found that if I get that barrel cut, you know, that if you try to do a resaw and you oh, get yeah. that curve that. across the thickness, that I don't have enough tension. Um, and I just need to tighten it up a little bit. That's the only time I've ever really had issues with low tension. Yeah, yeah my family always knows when my blades are not tensioned properly because then they start hearing a lot of swearing coming <laughs> from the basement and something usually flying across the room. Fretza, fretza. <laughs> All right, so we didn't have this one uh, pulled up into the questions because I didn't think we'd get that far, but we do have one more question here, and I think this is a good one because there's like 10 questions built into it. Oh, yes. And these have not been previewed at all. Um, I, I have one question that's broken into 10 parts of three subparts. Yes. Um, so it's the one from Larry Spitz, guys. It's under our oh, yeah. power tool section. I figure right. we could just kind of hit them one at a time. Hopefully, they're, they're questions that we can actually answer. We'll see. Oh, good. Yes. He says, uh, hey, guys, just discovered your podcast a few months ago, and I've been listening to new episodes since, as well as slowly working my way through the ep- early episodes. I have a lot of questions for you, but would fully understand if you chose not to deal with them all at once. Oh, here we go. Uh, Number one, I have a saw stop and I would like to have some more zero clearance inserts for it, but I've not been able to find any aftermarket blanks. The saw stop insert is relatively complex, especially on the bottom side. So it's not just a matter of routing blanks with a pattern bit. I'm reluctant to put the effort into making my own blanks. I wish I, I would much prefer to just buy them. Do you know of any source for the blanks? The NZ... New Zealand? New Zealand. Distributor? Okay. For SawStop is quite unresponsive, and SawStop in Oregon uh, refers all inquiries to their distributors. Um, Any ideas, guys? Well, you know, actually, because I happen to own a SawStop, I also have a few. I have a couple of extra inserts uh, if I wanted to play around with it. And I grabbed both the standard insert and the dado insert. And really what uh, um, he's talking about in here is they already have a groove dadoed into it for, you know, bringing the blade up through this one particular area because you know how like if you have a shop made one it's going to be uniform thickness all the way across yeah and sometimes it just touches on the blade because maybe you know it kind of rides up a little bit there mm-hmm. that's the main thing on also with the uh the saw stop it has this nice little kind of clampy thing that helps to ensure the uh insert stays tight against the actual tabletop surface you don't actually need it it's just a feature that they have in there uh it has the typical things that help to tighten it to make sure that it's not going to come flying out at you okay but you know you can kind of deal with those with any type of regular uh insert that you make for yourself so other than the fact that it has this groove and it actually has like two or three little weird grooves on there um those are really – I think they're put in there for one simple reason, and that's to make it easy for you when you install this so that when you try to make your zero in, zero clearance, it's almost foolproof. But if you're going to make just a regular one, there's – you can do the same exact thing without having those grooves on there. So just like any of the uh, great links that are out there and videos of showing somebody creating – a typical table insert, you could do exactly that, follow mm. those directions, and you – as far as I'm concerned, we'll get the same exact results from it on your saw stop without having to purchase a special, you know, manufactured one from someplace else. Well, because it seems like they just came up with some little creature comfort improvements, but you it, could still operate it like a regular uh, insert that just drops in place. That's exactly it. The, the only thing that might be a little bit different is on the backside. And again, this is to help kind of it's a safety feature is how they, they kind of. Uh, market it there's a couple little screws that one help you to level you know uh, to make sure it's nice and flush with the surface but they also kind of lock underneath a couple of set screws on the back side again that's just that's what they consider to be an extra safety feature Mm. so if you're just going to make a regular one you really don't need them because I, I could easily take another insert and drop it in there. Uh, now, I, I know the folks at SawStop are probably going to drop me an email and be like, um, we definitely don't recommend that. So <laughs> this is not coming from SawStop. I don't represent SawStop in the sense of I go out and tell people to do these things in the hopes that somehow it's going to set off their devices and you have to you know, purchase extra cartridges. That's, that's not what that's I'm That's what I was wondering. <laughs> would, would a zero clearance plate interfere with the blade dropping out of the way if it were triggered? Well, you know, that's the thing is when you turn on your saw stop, there's the whole little bypass system. And the purpose of that is without turning the bypass on, when the little lights come on, it will tell you if the uh, whatever you have in place is going to set off the system. It's a, it's a warning system. It's a diagnostic system to wow. tell you, you know, one, it's working fine or two. If you actually turn the saw on, I'm going to shoot this cartridge off. Mm. So, you know, by putting this in place, it would actually give you that warning because you don't have to turn the blade on. You just 
turn the diagnostic switch on, which is runs power to the saw without turning the saw on. Does that, that make sense? There's like two keys essentially that you have to turn on to actually get the blade to spin. That's pretty if, cool though. That's, I mean, if you're going to have that type of feature, you got to have some sort of early warning system to avoid, you know, just uh, accidental firing. That's great. Right. And, and well, no, my, my question is if you truly have a zero clearance, and, you know, if the blade is triggered and it drops down beneath the table and whatever the millisecond that it takes to do that, uh-huh. would a zero clearance insert actually interfere with that? In other words, would it like tear that insert to shreds or possibly well, prevent the blade from dropping out of the way? Well, if you think about with with the zero clearance, when your blade is coming up, if there's any little wavering in it, you know, what, you know, whatsoever left to right, it's already cleared that space for when it's wavering. So when it's dead center, like when it's dead still, which when the brake shoots off, it's going to make that blade dead still. It's going to drop down right between that space that's already kind of set up from that left to right kind of wavering. Yeah, and you've always got that little bit of of motion there that that you eliminate right. when you first bring the blade up through the insert anyway. So your your zero clearance is never truly zero. It's always zero plus, you know, a little bit more. <laughs> so it sounds to me like, you know, we, you can go and you can buy those insert blanks the little red ones that you can then just put in place and run the blade up through. It sounds to me like he hasn't been able to find any that fit his saw stop. Yeah. So no exactly. or, he or is going to have to break out the pattern blanks and right. pattern bits and just make his own. Right. Or, or perhaps there is, I, I've, I've never actually looked for one. I haven't had a, a, a need to yet, but yeah, if there's one that matches the same exact size, I think his big concern is he's, when you do look at the bottom, you this thing, I probably should post a picture of it. It looks pretty intimidating. You're like, wow, they've got all these slots. They must they must mean something. <laughs> and really, I think what it means is we're making it convenient for you for whenever you decide to actually use this. It's going to be just easy to pop it in place and bring your blade up, and we're just doing a convenience for you. So I'm just looking, and maybe I misread the question. I'm looking at Amazon, and I see a saw stop dado lockdown insert. It looks like a solid plate. There's no holes cut in it yet, and it's ready to go. What, right. Why isn't this meeting his needs? Uh, I, I'm under the impression that he's looking for something a little bit more inexpensive or – yeah, because he says he's looking for any aftermarket blanks. Yeah, because this is not uh, – you know, it's 39 bucks. It's really not much more than a standard yeah. insert that you would buy you know, from a no-name company. Um, right. That may be something – I don't know if that's what he's looking for, but I'll put the link in there for him because um, that's what I would buy if I was looking to, to do that with the saw stop. Yeah, yeah. no, granted, he is in New Zealand, so I don't know if – you know, does Amazon New Zealand, do they have a different site? I, I, I don't know. Yeah. yeah. I mean, is it just that, yeah, wherever he purchased it from, perhaps they don't have them in stock. And so he's thinking, you know, he might be able to find it elsewhere. Yeah, it or, is sold by SawStop. So he yeah, should be able to okay. source it through the company. Yep, exactly. Oh, so, okay. yeah, and look, he could be just be like other woodworkers like ourselves where I'm like, I'm going to make it myself. There you go. All right, let's rip through these because we're running a little long here. Um, one of your podcasts, you mentioned that you were thinking of upgrading to a Shelix cutter head. Did you ever do this? No. Did you convert a machine or buy a new? I was converting a Powermatic 8-inch jointer, and I did not do it yet. So, um <laughs> Uh, let's see. Did you convert both a joiner and a thickness planer? I'd be interested in your experience. I my thickness planer came with the Shelix head in it, so I did not do a conversion there. And and sometime when I find some spare time, I will do the conversion on the jointer, and I'll probably cover my experience of uh, fu- fuddling through the process. Didn't you go ahead and order one? But there was like a yep a lead time on so it or something. Seven weeks, I think it took for it to yeah. come in, and now it's going to sit in my <laughs> shop for more than seven weeks before I get to it. Uh, right. Third party says, I read a lot of woodworking related magazines and websites. Recently, I saw an item about reusing expensive shop vacuum bags. It seems like a clever idea at the time, but unfortunately, I have forgotten both the idea and the source of the <laughs> idea. Well, that sucks. Uh, do you have any pointers on reducing the expense of shop vac bags? Um, for me, I can say that I don't, I really don't reuse bags and it does bother me that I have to buy them all the time. But, uh, one thing that Festool does, that's great. If you're, uh, it's not going to help you for a shop vac, but if you use like a Festool dust extractor, they do have a, a like reusable long life bag that you can use that you could just empty, put the thing back on and, and put it back into the vacuum. So I don't know if, I don't think every company sells that type of thing, but if you could find something like that, that would be pretty cool. Yeah, it sounds to me probably the best thing he can do is put a separator in. You know, if That's he's true. filling up his bags really fast, maybe he's putting larger particles in there. Mm-hmm. 
So run one of those like little cyclone things that dust you tested, deputy, Mark. Yeah, um, dust deputy or um, the CV06, I think it is from uh, yeah, Clearview. Because then you're only putting the really, really fine stuff, like sanding dust in there. And, yeah, it'll take you, know, you forever to <laughs> exactly. fill up a bag. Yeah, good point. Good point. All right, uh, let's go to the last one. I have a, a record. Is that how you pronounce that? <laughs> Sorry. Is it record? Yes, CD. record. CD. Yes. I have a record 53 and a half vice on my workbench. If I tighten it enough to put a good grip on something, it often refuses to open again. The quick release mechanism just ratchets until I grab the actuating bar with pliers and resist the ratcheting motion while the lead screw tries to retract. Oh, that sounds painful. <laughs> yeah, it does. It's hard to read, too. I've Googled and found nothing that addresses this problem, though I know the problem is not unique to my vice. Anyone have any advice on that? So, so the quick release mechanism just ratchets. Yeah, do you have a cricket sound effect somewhere? <laughs> I yeah, try. I, I was trying to – when I saw this question come in, I was trying to think of like, is there – is it just that he's, he's, it's coming in too tight? I mean, you know, like if you put like a little – like a little spacer bar in there to kind of, you know, would that help? But I, I don't think so. It just sounds like when you get it tight, it, it's going to stay locked. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. Personally. I wonder, I wonder if he's experiencing some racking in the vice itself. Mm. You know, if he's really cranking down that thing to get it to hold tight, maybe it's, I don't know this vice really well. Does if it has two bars, if it is in fact racking, that could cause problems where it's not going to want to let go. But, um, yeah, I have zero experience with quick release vices, unfortunately. Okay, well, we got three out of four, so that's not bad. So what that's where you the audience. If anyone knows, please pipe up. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, real quick, let me just get this one because it's there. Jim sent us a question looking for options between the Festool and the DeWalt track saws, pros, cons. I'm going to have to give you a link to the video I did on this that covers uh, my, my little testing that I did to show you that there's really not a huge difference in terms of performance. Uh, currently shopping and looking for a good, well, let me, let me, let me answer that a little bit more thoroughly. Um, one thing that I am doing is buying Grizzly's new saw that's coming out soon because it's so cheap that I just want to see, does it even come close to what these other saws do? Now I found the DeWalt and the Festool to be fairly comparable and just general, immediate, out of the box, how it cuts plywood sort of quality. But the price difference between them is just not, for me personally, the price difference does not justify getting away from the Festool because the Festool stuff I do find to be a higher quality. The cut quality is better. And you also, if you're looking to possibly get other tools in the future, you've got this sort of system approach that's huge if you want your tools to work well together. So that's something didn't, you have to think about. did DeWalt used to be more expensive than the Festool? I don't when think it first so. came out, wasn't it like oh, you know what? It might have been more or something. It, it might have been. I know they were much closer, and I know they've gotten a little bit further apart. <laughs> that was a ballsy move, man. but yeah, yeah. But but it's not quite like what Grizzly's doing, where it's you know hundreds of dollars cheaper now. Um, what what is it? I haven't seen it yet. What does it cost? The Grizzly. Yeah, it's like uh, oh crap! I have to look it up. It's like a hundred and twenty bucks or something like that. Wow! <laughs> Holy cow! So let me see what it is. That's incredible. I'm looking. I'm well, looking. I've never tried the DeWalt, but I do have the Festool and it rocks. Oh, 179 with the track. Holy cow. So when you compare that to 500 bucks on the Festool, yes. Now that, if you're looking for a cost savings, is a significant difference that you need to look into. But when you're only talking about maybe saving $100, I have a harder time. I have a harder time telling someone to go with the DeWalt when I know what Festool brings to the table as a company and a support system and, and tech support and then future um, expansion of, of your line of tools that you have in the shop. So there you go. Uh, you know what he asked about air tool lines. Also, that's something I don't really, I don't know much about it. I just go to home Depot and buy whatever, uh, whatever I, serves my I purposes. I have the red stuff that's at home Depot and <laughs> yes, it has memory and yes, it's annoying, but yeah. yeah. Uh, you know what the, that great tools company that makes the retractable power cord, uh, that I've got in the shop. I did a, a quick video on it a couple months ago. Yeah, they, a little Death Star looking thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. They are making one for air tool lines. Now that, I mean, it's going to be super pricey, but that is something you might want to look into because it's going to be a high quality line, but fully automated retraction, which is just awesome. Hmm. So some, something to think. About. I only ever use my air tools for like inside the house, putting up molding and stuff. So I Cool. I deal with it. <laughs> All right. Well, I think that'll just about do it for us. I, I did want to mention real quick that next week we will not have a Wood Talk episode. We're taking a week off. Uh, we're all kind of snowed under with various things on our schedules. So we need to have a week off and get some crap done. 
but we will have a review show posting that we that'll help you know, it's, it's not the same thing i understand it's just <laughs> me and matt we don't have shannon but uh, but it is I like it. It, it gives sometimes, me something to listen to. Yeah, sometimes Matt actually says things that you can understand. <laughs> yes, it's very, very clear. We give Matt a chance to talk. Um, so, yeah, and I want to remind you, today's show is sponsored by Festool. Go to FestoolUSA.com for more information and also Microjig at Microjig.com. want to thank our recurring donors. Remember, you can go to WoodTalkShow.com if you want to sign up for a recurring donation and help support the cause, which we really appreciate. And we will read your name here on the show, like we're going to do for Marilyn Marilyn Guth- Guthrie, is that how she pronounces her name? Yeah, that works for me. People are going to get so sick of me hearing <laughs> hearing me asking you guys how to pronounce names. I just think it's funny you ask us. It's just a, <laughs> it's like a, a knee jerk reaction. It's weird. Uh, Chris Stahl and Bill Levering. So thank you guys for your uh, contributions. We really appreciate it, and that just helps us keep everything going here. So uh, Alex, Alex just popped his head up and told me that yes, it is pronounced Guthrie. Woohoo! Awesome. Yeah. All right, Thank Matt, gosh. how about you give him the contact info and I will go eat dinner. All right. Well, if you want to leave us a voicemail on Skype, our username is Woodtalk Online. If you want to call our voicemail line at 623-242-5180, we'll gladly appre- appreciate those and we may even put it up on there. And preferably, you'll say your name so that we don't slaughter it. Uh, email us at woodtalkonline at gmail.com and even leave us a comment over on our Facebook page. Uh, look for us where Woodtalk and if you're looking for the show notes and any of the links and all that good stuff that we ever talk about here, head over to woodtalkshow.com and you'll find all that great stuff there. Yeah, baby. All right. Sweet. All right. Cool. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. We will catch you in two weeks' time, not one week, and uh, we'll see you then. Yeah, so go get woodworking. Yeah, that's right. Go get woodworking. Hey, you know what? We should probably mention Get Woodworking Week is this week. <laughs> go to uh, tomsworkbench.com if you want to get more information. This is an effort started by Tom. And it's all about getting people off their butts, stop, uh, you know, reading so much and, and researching so much and actually go in the shop and do something, make make yeah. some projects. And Quit then, worrying about it. Yeah, Just then after do this, something. After this week is over, then you can go back online and start reading our blogs. And uh, <laughs> stop, stop listening to it. Because we do Come appreciate on. that. So, yeah, get Woodworking Week. It's an awesome thing. And then uh, keep an eye out at tomsworkbench.com for the daily updates on links from around the web. So, Sweet. Uh, yeah, we'll catch you next time, guys. See ya. Yeah. You guys time that perfectly with each other <laughs> you're like a you're like a barbershop duet see ya see ya this podcast is part of the frog pants studios network for more information about this and other shows visit frogpants.com audio program so good it's like you're there 